A couple people have mentioned that uh, they would like more of an overview of last day events, kind of a chronological order emphasizing what I intended to do, and that is to talk about kingdom people and the behavior specifically in the kingdom of God. And when I say the kingdom of God here, based upon the scripture, Ezekiel 44, we're talking about the millennial kingdom. We need to remember, I'm sure most of you have heard me say this many, many times, but the kingdom of God comes in two stages, right? After Messiah returns and he comes, according to the book of Revelation, in Revelation 19, he comes bringing this judgment, this wrath, and then he sets up a kingdom in Jerusalem, a kingdom in this world. And he will rule and we will rule with him for a thousand years, correct? After that, there's going to be a war. War of who? Well, we need to set straight a few things. And I want to begin by going through a review of what we talked about earlier. What are the next thing on God's prophetic timetable? My response would be the rising up of the ram. Daniel chapter 8 speaks of this ram. It is going to be an Iranian. Why do I say Iranian? Because the scripture says in that passage, speaks about a beast. A beast is an empire. And it says that the ram is Paras Umidai. That is Persia and the Medes, which is an ancient way of saying Iran and beyond. It's not just going to be this one nation, Iran of today. Iran is going to be the leader, but it's going to encompass other countries, other peoples. So the ram is going to begin, and this happens prior to Daniel's 70th week. That is the last seven years. So they rise up. I mentioned they cause panic, havoc, death, despair, a sense of hopelessness. And basically the answer is, who can stand against this beast, the ram? And as I said, suddenly, without any indicators, there's going to be another empire that manifests itself, and that is called the goat. The goat is going to be based in Europe. He is going to destroy the ram, and he is going to set up his own empire. He, too, is a beast. And his empire, when it's established, after the defeat of the ram, is going to begin that last seven years. Initially, as I mentioned, the character of this goat empire, this antichrist empire, is going to be one of do what is right in your own eyes. Worship how you want to worship. All worship is good. All worship is of the same value. And do not think, and this is going to be the problem. People are going to have to be extremely tolerant. What does that mean? Well, if I want to worship this, this piece of metal, and Rick says, that's just man-made. You're worshiping incorrectly. He's offended me. He has spoken 
hate words to me. That type of behavior to say, no, this is truth, and what you're doing is falsehood, that's not going to be allowed. So everything's going to be acceptable, and we have to affirm everything. It goes back to this old saying in the 1960s. You're okay, and I'm okay. Well, if I say only Yeshua's holy, and we're not, and we're in need of mercy, and this God, whether it's Buddha or Muhammad or whatever, is wrong, that's going to be disallowed. That is the initial character of this final empire known as the goat that the Antichrist will rule from. Who's going to stand against that? We've already mentioned, we are. We're going to be persecuted, we're going to be in prison, we're going to be put to death, but there's a change. As the middle of that week, a week is seven years prophetically. As that middle time comes forth, we know something. There's going to be a change. That harlot, read the book of Revelation, the harlot is going to be cast aside. What was a harlot? What does it represent? Idolatry. Worship how you want. That's going to be put aside. The Antichrist and the false prophet, they are going to do signs and wonders and such. And they're going to say, you have to worship us. Literally, the Antichrist. So there's no going to be any more worship how you want. In fact, there's going to be an image set up that everyone's going to have to make. And they're going to have to take the mark of this image of the beast. And they're going to have to worship him ceremonially until an event. And that event is called Shikutz HaMeshomem, which is the abomination of desolation. We know what it is. If you followed our, our program on television a few months ago, we studied extensively Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 11. In fact, we spent six weeks, six weeks on Daniel chapter 11. We also have, if you go to our website, you can, uh, most everything we have is free, but we do have, and I won't go into the reasons why, but we do have a few lectures that you can purchase the link to stream on your own devices. One is, is called The Blessed Hope. Also, we've gone into greater detail. It should be published this week, correct? It was supposed to be out Wednesday, but there was a delay at the publisher. A, a booklet, 80 pages, very short, that outlines the blessed hope, what the scripture says about it, what other people say, the attacks against it, wrong teaching about it. But in the middle of that week, there is the abomination of desolation. And the Antichrist, what that is, is the Antichrist is going to go into where? The Holy of Holies. And he's going to say to everyone, to Israel, but to world, worship me. No longer is Islam, Buddhism, whatever it may be, acceptable. You have to worship the Antichrist. Israel's going to reject that. Israel's going to go through a time of their worst persecution, even worse than the, the Holocaust. 
at the end of that time, because where he is persecuting Israel, at that same time, God is bringing his wrath upon the world. Israel is sealed, right? Revelation chapter 7. Israel sealed from the wrath of God, not from the persecution of the enemy. And we know the scripture says that approximately two-thirds, right? Two-thirds of the Jewish people are going to die during what's called Jacob's trouble. At the end of this time, Messiah is going to return to Jerusalem. He is going to defeat the Antichrist, his empire, and he is going to set up a kingdom, the millennial kingdom, correct? On day one, on day one, everyone who is in the millennial kingdom has accepted Messiah. And there's a few groups of people, right? Now, we're going to be in the millennial kingdom, and I'm speaking we, believers. We who have taken part in that blessed hope, we're going to have a new body, but we're going to have a unique and distinct role. What are we going to be doing? Ruling and reigning with Messiah. So we're in the state of perfection, a kingdom body, and we're ruling with him. There's going to be both Jews and Gentiles who have come to faith after, after the rapture. And they are going to be in a natural body. Now, on day one, everyone's believers. But what is going to be the rule of law, the administration of the millennial kingdom? We know what it is. Read Isaiah chapter 2. It says it will come about in the last days. And there the last days mean the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. That the law will go forth from where? Zion. That is a kingdom term. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Messiah is going to rule in the millennial kingdom based upon the law. And I mean those 613 commandments. We are going to be ruling and reigning with him. Now, when we look at the commandments, if we open up one of the first commandments given to Adam and Eve in the garden was what? Be fruitful and multiply. So that's going to be the case. People are going to be born into the millennial kingdom. Now on day one, everyone is what? A believer. But now there's going to be people born into the millennial kingdom. And they're born into a situation where Messiah is seen. He is ruling and ruling with a rod of iron. And the way that we obey God, not us believers, but those who are born, they have to, if they sin, they offer up a sacrifice in memorial to Messiah. Remembering what he's done. That's what Ezekiel speaks about, these sacrifices. They're not for what we would call the church. They're called for those who were born in the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is how this world was supposed to be. With a righteous king. With rules that reflect the righteousness of God. Still with mercy and forgiveness. See, the sin that took away the sacrifice, excuse me, that took away my sin is eternal. But in the millennial kingdom, it's a new beginning. Now, that's going to go on for a thousand years. At the end of a thousand years, what happens? 
Satan is released. This is problematic, correct? Why is he released? It says he's bound for a thousand years, but at the end of a thousand years, it is necessary. It's that Greek word, delta, epsilon, iota, which is pronounced day. It's not like that earlier word. This is spelt differently. And it means it is absolutely necessary. It has to be. Satan has to be released. Why? Well, those individuals who have been born into the millennial kingdom, do they believe in Yeshua or not? Well, it's their choice. Now, when we say, I mean, they see him, right? He's ruling with a rod of iron. They have to obey him or else. But the question is, have they really received him as Lord? So Satan is released. And Satan, as he did in the garden 6,000 years ago, he's going to do at the end of the millennial kingdom. He is going to tempt them. And basically what he's saying is this. Come out with me. We'll regroup. And we will make war. The scripture says this. Read the end of Revelation 20. We will make war with the saints. And overcome them. That's his promise. In other words, you who have lived up to a thousand years in the millennial kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, of peace, of justice, with Messiah ruling over. You want to live in a kingdom like that? I do too. But Satan's going to say, you don't have to take that. You don't have to experience that. We can destroy that and set up the kingdom that we want, where everyone does what they want to do. And there's going to, and I don't understand this, but if you read, there's going to be a great number, it says one that can't be counted, that's going to agree with Satan, that does not want to submit to the righteousness of Messiah as manifested through the law of Moses. By the way, when we start looking at the law in a prophetic sense, in a millennial kingdom sense, we find that it changes from the law of Moses to who? The law of God. Very interesting. Very interesting. So they go out, and many scholars, they, they miss out on something. Because they say, you know, there's something confusing. Because this war that takes place after the millennial kingdom, it's referenced by a term, right? Gog and Magog. Now, wait a second. I thought Gog and Magog, that battle, was in Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's prior to the millennial kingdom. That's right. Understand one of the natures of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation likes to take Old Testament passages and use them. Sometimes takes half and puts on a different ending. It's not because it's confusion, doesn't know, an error. But what do we know about the battle of Gog and Magog? I'll tell you what we know about it. Messiah won. His people won. It was a battle of victory for the people of God. Therefore, John uses, he borrows that term to tell us something. Now, the battle is very different. When you read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the last part of Revelation 20, this battle, 
There's nothing similar about it except for we win. Why? Well, if you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, it describes this battle, but it's very different. In Revelation 20, what happens? Satan comes against with his weapons, with his army, and what happens? Fire comes down from heaven, consumes it, end of story, over and done, immediately. And then what do we have? We have a change. Judgment, we saw it at the end of Revelation 19, that judgment gave birth to what? Kingdom. And at the end of Revelation 20, we see judgment, and that judgment gives birth to what? Kingdom. The new Jerusalem. Now, in the new Jerusalem, everything's going to be perfect. But there's still, and we were talking about this up above or here earlier, there's two still groups of people. One that took part in the rapture, those other believers that did not. What's the difference between them? They all believe the same truth. They've all accepted the gospel. What's the difference? Well, as we were talking about earlier, part of our blessed hope is that we get a new body, a kingdom body. There is nothing in the scripture that alludes to the fact, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but we have no scripture where those who come to faith after the rapture, during those last uh, part of Daniel's 70th week, those who were born and became believers in the millennial kingdom, we have no scripture that clearly says that they ever receive a glorified body. Do they? Maybe they do. But it's something that we cannot dogmatically say. And then we have a scripture. This is what gave rise to our conversation here a few minutes ago. And that was when we look at the New Jerusalem. Remember says that there is a river. There's great similarities between the New Jerusalem and the Garden of Eden, correct? And there's that river in the Garden. There was how many? Four. In the New Jerusalem, just one. And what's emphasized in the New Jerusalem is the tree of life. And somehow, I don't understand this, but that one tree is seen on both sides of the river. God can work that out. And there's going to be fruit from that tree every month. And if you look at the New Jerusalem, you know what number just keeps appearing over and over and over and over and over and over? Twelve. Sometimes it's 12 twice, 12, 144, or 12,000 times 12,000, 144,000. But that number's 12 there. There's 12 gates. There's 12 foundations. 12, 12, 12, 12. What should come into your mind? The 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 disciples. It all relates to God's covenant people. Well, what we know is when we look at the new Jerusalem, there's going to be that tree that gives fruit every month, 12 times a year. Also, it says it has leaves, and help me out, the leaves are for healing of who? The nations. Now, my interpretation, and for the most part, last night and today, I try not to give you interpretations. 
Just read the scripture and share what the word of God is clearly saying, in my opinion. Not some interpretation. Now I'm giving you an interpretation, which be aware of that. We read here that the leaves are for healing, and I assume, I infer, it's not specifically said, that that leaves for healing are for the nations, and I believe that's a term, I assume, that it's a reference to those, not part originally of the church, that is those who took part in the blessed hope, but those who came to faith after, they do not have a new body, my opinion, therefore those leaves are necessary for healing. That's my interpretation. Now, that's an overview, and I want now to turn our attention to what we're supposed to do, and that is to look at Ezekiel chapter 44. I just want to take probably 10 minutes and just highlight some of the things that are in these uh, uh, nine verses that we're going to look at. So let's begin. Ezekiel 44, verse 23. And my people, they will teach. Now the emphasis here is upon the koanim. Who's that? The priests. If we're speaking in here, we're dealing with the millennial kingdom, not the new Jerusalem. I need to say that. Ezekiel's kingdom is the new Excuse me, Ezekiel's kingdom is the millennial kingdom and not the new Jerusalem. Why do we know that? Well, Ezekiel has what structure? The temple. In the new Jerusalem, there is no temple. God dwells with his people. The dwelling place of God is with us. So we're dealing with those thousand years, Messiah's on the throne from Jerusalem. And we read here. And they, meaning the priests, they will teach my people. Now, what will they teach us? Between that which is holy and that which is profane. Now, we can go back, and most of the rabbinical commentators do this. And they go back to Genesis 1. When God makes a distinction between light and light and darkness, goodness, and evil. And so this same ideology is being presented, that we need to learn that which is holy, holy is a word of purpose, that which reflects the purposes of God and that which does not, between that which is impure and that which is pure, they need to what? No. See, if we don't Judge rightly, if we don't have discernment, we can't make wise choices. We can't choose the will of God. So all of these things that we're learning about in verse 23 is to tell us that in the millennial kingdom, there are going to be anointed teachers from the priests that are going to teach the people how to choose according to the purposes of God. If I was journaling, making a note, I would say, my prayer should be based upon me understanding the purposes of God. God, help me that I might make decisions in light of your purposes. That's what he's talking about. That which is holy, according to his purpose. That which is profane, 
against this purpose. That which is impure, that reflects a unrighteous character. That which is pure, that reflects his character. We need to know, and this is an experiential word, that they will know them. That's the kingdom people. We know these things. Verse 24. And concerning, the word is reeve in Hebrew, which is a contention, a dispute. And concerning a dispute, they, once more referring to the priests, they will stand to judge, make judgments according to what? My judgments. So in the millennial kingdom, the priests finally, we haven't seen this earlier on, they are going to make decisions that reflect the decisions, the judgments of God. And they will judge it, meaning judge these things, and my laws and my statutes with all my, what does your Bible say? All my appointed feasts. What we talked about last night, Moadai, my appointed days. Now, here's the question. We're looking here, and if you disagree, that's fine. I just don't understand the basis for a disagreement. We're dealing with the kingdom that Messiah is ruling over. And we need to know what is right and what is wrong, what is holy, what is unholy, what is pure, what is impure. We need to know these things so that we can make righteous decisions. We can settle disputes. When there's conflict, we know who is right and who is wrong. That's what the scripture is saying. In order that, notice it says, my laws, my statutes, and my appointed days. These festivals will indeed be observed in the millennial kingdom. And through these festivals, we learn truth. We grow in our understanding of the character of God and the purposes of God. It says, in all my holy days, appointed days, they will keep. And my Sabbaths, they will what? They will sanctify. They will mark. Remember, that word sanctify, it's the same word for holy. They will Make my Sabbaths holy. That is, they're going to understand the purpose of Shabbat. Now, my question to you is this. If in the millennial kingdom, when Messiah is ruling and we are ruling with him, we are going to be in agreement, we're going to be mandating the priests of that time to teach these things. If they're relevant for a kingdom where the, that evil inclination is, is less, why do I say that? You know what? When there's no opportunity for sin, let me give you this example. If you knew that there was a police officer at mile marker 100 taking radar, would you be tempted to speed as you come? No, there's no temptation, right? Just, but the moment you know I passed him, and there's no more police. That's the one guy in the county that takes radar. I'm home free. What do you do? Okay. Why? So in the same way, with Messiah ruling, with this rod of iron, you're not going to get away with anything. There is perfect justice, perfect acknowledgement of all things. 
Therefore, the temptation is going to be less because there's perfect rule, perfect knowledge. So he says here, and that's like there's going to be less of this temptation. It's going to be a holier place than the world we're living in now because of Messiah's rule. And if he's teaching the law, the statutes, the holidays, if they're important in the millennial kingdom, would we not think that they're important now to understand, to study, to apply the truth of them to our lives? What he says in verse 24. Verse 25. And concerning the death of a man, you shall not come and make yourself impure for, except for a father or a mother or a son or a, a daughter or a brother. But for your sister, you shall not do so if what? She's married. That's the implication. You don't do so. Now, this is something that we talked about in the Old Testament. But what's the key here? What are we talking about? Death. And death is what? Related to sin. And therefore, what it's saying is, this impurity that's related to sin, we, we don't want to be near. Now, the exception is mourning. Only exception. Whereby someone approaches this, this impurity of death. Now, most of the church, I would think, this is ridiculous. That's why when we deal with the scripture, you know how most do? They just put an X through it. There is no millennial kingdom. None of these things are relevant. Forget it. It's not. It's poetic. It's, it's, it's symbolic. We need to spiritualize it. It has no relevance in reality in the future. That's where most of, of Christianity is today, most of the seminaries that I'm aware of, that's how they approach this. We don't need to learn it. Not true. Verse, verse 26. And after if someone renders himself impure because of the death of a family member, afterwards he shall purify himself seven days, he shall count. And at the end... He may come into the holy place to the courtyard, the inner courtyard, in order to serve in my holy place. And he shall bring near his sacrifice for sin, declares the Lord God. Now, this is a priest who has rendered himself unclean because of a death of a family member. This tells us something. People will die they will live a long time, but there will still be death. Now, the reason is because what is the law that's being administered here? Torah law. And with Torah, there's life and what? Death. There's blessing and curse. We will live a long time. When I say we, not believers, we're going to be in what? A glorified body. Those who are believers, this is talking mainly to who? that group that is born into the millennial kingdom. That's the emphasis of the millennial kingdom, those who are born into it.
that they might understand the righteousness of God. Verse 28. And there shall be to them an inheritance, for I am their inheritance, and a estate they shall not be given to them in Israel. They have no place referring to the priests. Why? He says it again. I am their, what does your Bible say? Possession. It's, in modern Hebrew, it has to do with an estate, like some large place, a, a mansion, a compound. And it says they don't receive that. Why? Because of their unique call to God. Verse 29. And my offering, mincha, grain offering, and the sacrifice, a sacrifice and guilt offering, they shall eat of it. So during that time, people are bringing these sacrifices, but learn something. I say this frequently when we talk on this, but uh, how many of you are aware of Charles Stanley? He's a well-known preacher. I believe he's uh, going to be 87 this year. Still in the pulpit almost every week. And he was asked about this, this issue. And I, I use him because I, I respect him. And it's interesting what he says. He believes the word of God. And he says, you know what? The Bible says there's going to be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. There's going to be sacrifices. But he says, we have to understand it right. Now, there's a very well-known rabbi that did. He died uh, about 20 years ago. And it's interesting. Both he and Charles Stanley agreed with this issue. Little different, but the basic message was the same. Rabbi, and his name is Schneerson, Rabbi Schneerson said this, that the chief sacrifice is the Passover sacrifice because it is a sacrifice for redemption and redemptions related to the kingdom. And this is what Schneerson said. He said, all the sacrifices that we read about in the book of Genesis, the ones that the patriarchs made, all of those pointed forward to Passover. And all of those sacrifices that we read about in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, in the temple, the first temple, the second temple, all of those sacrifices pointed back to the superior of the Passover sacrifice. In other words, the ones that are done after Passover they are to memorialize. They're done in memory to the sufficiency of the Passover sacrifice. Now, Charles Stanley said, said it this way. He said, the chief sacrifice is the Passover sacrifice. What Passover sacrifice do you think he's speaking about? Messiah Yeshua, Jesus Christ on the cross. And he says, all the sacrifices that the patriarchs, the children of Israel did in the wilderness, all those Old Testament sacrifices, they pointed to what? The cross. And he simply says that those sacrifices in the millennial kingdom will point back to what? The cross. They're done not to effectualize anything, meaning those sacrifices that we're reading about. They do not have any effect in and of themselves. They're done in memorial to that one sacrifice that does, and that is the blood 
of Messiah. Is that clear? Very important that we see that. Everything else is memorializing, pointing back to that sacrifice to end in an effective way. All sacrifices is the cross. It is sufficient for all sin. That's what we need to understand. So these grain offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, the, the priests, they will eat of it. But, it says, and all the, the destroyed things of Israel, it shall be unto them. That, those things that are forbidden for everyone else, they get that. Verse 30. And the beginnings of the first fruit and all the, the, it's another word for offerings, are two are for the, the priests they will be. And the first of the, the lumps. Now this probably has to do with the, the first fruit, the reshit offering by this word. They shall be given to the priests. And they shall lie them as a blessing for your house. So you see here, in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be a change. There is going to be an emphasis on what people? The priests. Now why? If you were taking a course in a good seminary, and they were looking over this, they would see this as something that mentions our right mindset for today. And that is, Peter says, does he not, that we are a royal priesthood. In the same way, in the millennial kingdom, we go back to a Torah-based doctrine where the priests are first and foremost under that covenant. But now, in this age, we find that the priesthood has to do with a covenant as well. But what covenant? The law? No, if it was the law, it would be who? Once again, the priests. Do the priests do anything in Judaism today? Not really. They have a ceremonial blessing doing their Musaf service on Shabbat and holidays. They have that symbolic blessing during the week during the Shemoni Esrei, they are given the, the privilege of reading from the Torah first before anyone else, the priests, the Levites, and then anyone else. But they don't function under this dispensation. Why? Peter answers the question. Because we are the royal priesthood. We are the ones that's supposed to be doing the work of the priest. What is that? being a mediator between who? Humanity and God. Now there's a difference. What type of priesthood does Peter say we are? A royal. What is he referring to here? He's referring to a different high priest, not Aaron. He's referring to Malchizedek. Malchizedek. And there's something unique if you were with us during our study of the book of Hebrews, uh, maybe six months ago, before Daniel, you will know this. But Melchizedek had a unique priesthood. 
Messiahs of that order. He is not a Levitical priest, right? He doesn't come from the tribe of Levi. Messiah comes from the tribe of who? Judah. Judah. Now, what was unique about Melchizedek? Here's what's unique about him. If we look at the Levitical priesthood, they would take right from man and they would offer to God. And just like we read here, they gave to God, but who ate the sacrifice? They did. They benefited. So they took from man, they gave to God, but they, as God's servants, benefited as well. Messiah is not of that order. He comes from the order of Melchizedek. Is that not what the scripture says? What was unique about Melchizedek? Melchizedek, what we know about him, we read a little bit in Hebrews, a little bit in Psalm 110. Where's the other place that he's mentioned? Genesis. And he comes within the context of victory, correct? This victory that Abraham had over those other kingdoms with just 300 men. And Melchizedek comes out, and what does he do? He doesn't take an offering from Abraham and gives it to God. That's the Levitical way. What does he do? He takes from God and blesses Abraham. What's that blessing? Bread and wine. What do you think that reminiscent to? The body and the blood of Messiah. It, it is a reference to that, symbolically. So us as the royal priesthood, why royal? Melchizedek, my righteous king, royal priesthood under Melchizedek. We're supposed to take from God this bread and wine and give to who? Bless others. And what does that body and blood of Messiah speak to? One thing, and that's the gospel. So in this time allotment, when you and I are living in this body, we have a call to be a royal priesthood and take that gospel message to the world. That's our call. And I have no doubt that the primary reason that Rick and Mary invested in the Bible study company is to be part of that, to help train people because they know. I mean, the greatest joy that a person can know is that God has used me to influence this person to be obedient to God. That in some way, God has allowed me to have an influence where that person now is living a praiseworthy life, and God, you used me to impact that. What a joy. What a contentment. It's not about any other thing than being pleasing to God because we want to be people, all of us, all of us. We want to be people to say, God, I was indeed your royal priest. And you, don't we want to hear God say, you were well pleased with me. Not, all right, okay, not bad. We don't see that in the scripture. What do we see? that we want to be well-pleasing to God. In fact, if we really listen to the Word of God well and His Sermon on the Mount, you know what the Scripture says? That we should desire to be what? Great in the kingdom of God. 
See, these individuals, I hear people say all the time, just so I'm there, that's all that matters to me. You have not understood anything. The right attitude. I want to be great in the kingdom of God. That means I need to become a servant of all and I need to be people, a person that teaches people just like we see here in Ezekiel. What is right, what is wrong. What is holy, what is profane. What is pure, what is impure. We need to teach people to make right decisions so that their lives can be honored to God, a worship to God, praiseworthy to God. And my hope and my intent and why I came this year and why I may come next year <laughs> is to play a part in impacting people for righteousness. Why? It's righteous living that manifests God's glory. And that's what a royal priesthood does. We live in such a way, we behave in such a way that our desire is that righteousness is maintained because righteousness releases, it manifests, it makes visible the glory of God. And when you are used in that way, there is nothing better than that. Let's all stand.